A grievous blow has struck the ghetto. They are asking us to give up the best we possess. The children and the elderly. I was unworthy of having a child of my own. So I gave the best years of my life to children. I have lived and breathed with children. I, I never imagined I would be forced to deliver this sacrifice to the altar with my own hands. In my old age, I must stretch out my hands and beg. Brothers and sisters, hand them over to me. Fathers and mothers, give me your children. Yesterday afternoon, they gave me the order to send more than 20,000 Jews out of the ghetto, and if not, we will do it. So, the question became, should we take it upon ourselves, do it ourselves, or leave it to others to do? Well, we, that is I and my closest associates, thought first not about how many will perish, but how many is it possible to save? And we reached the conclusion that however hard it would be for us, we should take the implementation of this order into our own hands. I must perform this difficult and bloody operation. I must cut off limbs in order to save the body itself. I must take children, because if not, others may be taken as well. God forbid. The unimaginable and distressing opening to Heim Romkowski's Give Me Your Children speech, delivered on the 4th of September 1942. Romkowski was the elder in the Lodge Ghetto, the Nazi-appointed leader who made decisions with his Jewish council, and the Nazis had demanded people for deportation to the gas chambers, and Rumkowski had struck a deal where it would be the children under 10 and the elderly and the sick who would be offered up to the Nazis. Today's episode is going to touch on Rumkowski's speech because our special guest is a man who was in the square on that terrible day to hear the speech. And his name is Abram Goldberg. He's 97 years old, a Holocaust survivor. He's one of the lucky few who went through the gates of Auschwitz and came out alive. His incredible story will be told in this interview, but it's told in even more detail in a beautiful and uplifting book that he's written with Melbourne actor and author Fiona Harris called The Strength of Hope. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. 
the hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and this is an amazing episode. Yesterday I edited the audio of my interview with Abram Goldberg, Holocaust survivor, oldest ever guest on the podcast at 97 years of age. I edited this interview and he reduces me to tears live during our chat but he also did it again during the edit it's quite incredible and i think this is going to be one of the best episodes of the podcast so far abram was born in the polish city of lodge and lodge as he'll say in this interview was a center of the textile industry in poland and it was the home of hundreds of thousands of jews 700,000 at the time the war broke out when World War II started, the Nazis quickly set up a ghetto in the city of Lodge, and it is a horrendous place. The death and daily deprivation, the starvation, the beatings, the hangings, the murders, all made the Lodge ghetto a place of incredible suffering, unimaginable suffering. And those descriptions are vivid in this chat with Abram, and also in the book that he co-wrote with Fiona Harris, Melbourne actor and author, and the idea that this was part of an intentional act of extermination is sickening in this story as it is in so many Holocaust stories. Speakola is sponsored by DocPlay.com and I found a film on DocPlay. There are so many hundreds of documentaries up there but there is a film on DocPlay called A Film Unfinished and although it isn't images of the Lodge Ghetto, it is images of the Warsaw Ghetto. And what the filmmakers have done is they found a propaganda film that was being made by the Nazis. It was a silent film, and there are interviews with the people who made the film. And basically they set about filming Jews in very constructed scenes of opulence and good living, fine living, eating in restaurants and so forth, and then juxtaposing that against corpses on the street and terrible deprivation and garbage dumps and excrement in the street with the intention that the rest of the world would think that it's the well-off and heartless Jews who are treating their fellow people in this way rather than the truth of the matter, which was that there was no luxury, there was no opulence. These were constructed scenes. It's a great film, a film unfinished, up at docplay.com. And if you want to subscribe to DocPlay, there is a 45-day free subscription offer through Speakola. The link is in the show notes, docplay.com forward slash racks with an R forward slash Speakola. Well, it's time to play the interview. And I ran into this story because I'm Facebook friends with Fiona Harris. She, like myself, is a kids book author. And like myself, she's actually written fictionalised accounts of the childhood of a famous sports person, Sam Kerr for Fiona, and the Selwood family for me. 
Earlier this year, I saw a Facebook post from Fiona saying that she was writing Abram Goldberg's memoir, and she mentioned that he was from the Lodge ghetto and the city of Lodge. And when she mentioned Lodge, I thought of Chaim Romkowski's speech. I'd read it before, and I wondered whether her co-author was there to witness the speech and if he could cast any light on it. And Fiona messaged me back to say that there was a chapter on the speech and what Chaim Romkowski said in that square and that Abram Goldberg was there. And I immediately put Abram and Fiona on my wish list of interviewees. The other voice you'll hear is Charlie Goldberg, Abram's son. Uh, he was in the room as well and cast a little bit of light at various points. But here it is, one of the best interviews so far on Speak Ola. Well, this is a big day for me. It's a speech that has uh, had a huge impact on my life uh, from the very first moment I read it. Uh, probably the saddest speech I've ever read. And here I am in the room of a man who was there for Rumkowski's speech in 1942. Thanks for having me here, Abram Goldberg. Thank you. And with you, Abram, is someone who has co-authored an amazing memoir which covers this speech, The Strength of Hope. And it's my friend, actor and writer Fiona Harris. Thanks for joining us, Fiona. Thank you for having me, Tony. So I ask the question to both of you, this wonderful book, this powerful and moving book, how did it happen? How did you two come together? Uh, well, I had written some kids' books for a firm press. This is how I came to write the book, but Abram's got his story about how Martin approached him. Do you want to tell that first, how Martin first approached you? Well, uh, I, I and my wife, Tasha, figured in a book what one lady wrote about trauma. She lost her husband at a very early age, and she wanted to write about trauma after losing, with, she was, she losing and she was with two kids. So she came to the Holocaust Museum and said she wanted uh, to write a book or could be somebody here who she can speak to. So I sent it to me. Well, I was talking to, to her for three hours, and she said, she took notes, of course, and then she said she will contact me. Well, it took a long time <laughs> before she contacted me, and then when she, it was nearly a year and a half, so we, she came here, and, and we talked, and this is how it came along, and uh, a firm press was uh, the publisher, and then... Uh, and that's when I came in. Then when you came in. So Martin from a firm press, Martin Hughes, um, he got in touch with me because I'd been working with them on some other books, some kids' books, and he said, um, would you be interested in writing the memoir of a Holocaust survivor? And the first thing I said was, oh, my God, of course, I would be absolutely honoured. And then the second thing I said was, does Abram know I'm not Jewish? And Martin said yes, but Abram is the sort of person who does not care about that kind of thing. And then, yeah, we, we and Martin said, well, how about you meet and see if you get along and if it's going to work? 
and it was through Zoom because, of course, it was lockdown. And, yeah, I was very, very nervous and thought, are they going to give me the tick of approval? And it was Abram and his son Charlie and Abram's daughter Helen and they were all on the screen and they were so lovely and warm and friendly and it was here at this kitchen table. And, yes, I immediately relaxed and they gave me the green light and so we started working together. And this is a remarkable piece of Holocaust history in the way that it connects to Melbourne. And I think it's significant because, Abram, you are – You've been one of the great leaders of telling the truth about the Holocaust here in Melbourne. Can you tell us what you what you set up here? Oh, well, uh, firstly, let me tell how it came about. You see, I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. I, I was the youngest of four siblings. And of my entire family, I and my oldest sister who was seven years older than myself, as the sole survivors of my entire family, around nearly 50. So, well, and in 1944, when the ghetto lodge was liquidated, I was with my mother. After hiding for over four weeks, from uh, in August 1944, when I was hiding in an attic with my, with my mother, well, we had to go up to the attic, was concealed, and there uh, was no leather, so we made our leather out of rope. And my mother had to walk up when we needed to, and say, we come down. But after four weeks, she was 53 years of age, and she was emaciated, physically very weak. I wasn't, but my mother, she was 53 years of age. She realized she can't do it any longer. And she thinks that she will, is a burden to me. She's preventing me from hiding. So she came out with a proposition that I should go on hiding, and she will present herself for deportation. Well, I was uh, then in 1942, I was 18 years of age. So, well, I couldn't let my mother go on her own. I knew where we were going to be taken. So, that we going to Auschwitz, Schwenchim, in Polish. And, uh, and I knew it's a place of death. I didn't know exactly how it's done there, how I murdered the Jews of there, but I knew that it's a place of extermination. So, well, I will take my chance. I said, I didn't tell my mother I'm going to take a chance. I said, I will go with you. My mother insisted that I stay, but she couldn't persuade me to stay. I was sure that I will be able to help her like I was able to help in the last four years in being incarcerated in the ghetto. So we went. Of course, uh, it's a, a voyage. It wasn't a voyage and cattle trucks squeezed in. The condition, what was there, it's undescribable. When we arrived on the 29th of August 1944, and of course, uh, when I opened those uh, heavy doors of the cattle train and the scream of the SS, the barking dogs, uh, my mother realized then when we were 
Terrible maat van de kateltrein, hij heeft helpen daarom van de trein. En when we stood uh, together, and when I started to scream, men one side, women and children the other side. My mother realized this immediately, that she, she was 50 years, 53 years of age, that she is not going to survive. So she turned to me in those instances what we were still together. She said to me, Abraham, you should do everything humanly possible to survive. And when you will survive, wherever you will find you, yourself, you should tell people what actually happened. And then we were parted, never to be seen again. Yeah. Um, was that the first story you told you too, Fiona? No, because I would be feeling very emotional like you are right now if that was the first story. We started with um, talking about Abram's life now. Um, we started talking about with Sesha, his wife, who's living now in, in Gary Smorgan house. And I started with very, I, I wanted to start with kind of, you know, I wanted him to trust me. I needed to earn that trust and I needed to not get straight into, you know, that kind of thing straight away. So we started by talking about his life now, his children, his grandchildren, his great granddaughter, um, what he has for breakfast. I asked you what you have for breakfast. Um, his routine, his work with the Holocaust Museum. So we kind of started in the present and then I gradually worked our way back. So Abram, I'm going to work back as well to get to a picture of Lodge. Was Lodge your hometown? Is that where you lived? And, and can you tell us? Well, I, I was born in Lodge. Even my parents were born in Lodge. You see, my father actually was born in 1887. My mother in 1889. So when my, and I lost my father when he was uh, in 1942. Uh, well, and, can, can, uh, and can, you, can you tell us about the ghetto being set uh, up? Well, it, it, oh well, the, the ghetto was uh, enclosed on the first of May 1940. But uh, I was deported with my family. Not my sister, it's the oldest, because she did uh, go to the side of uh, was occupied by the Soviet Union. And but she got married. So she went there and she was the only survivor. And she gave birth in the Soviet Union to a boy in 1940. In 1941, when Hitler didn't keep, according to the pact, attacked the Soviet Union, My sister, in the last minute, was able to run deep into, into Russia with her little boy. My brother-in-law was drafted into the Russian army and never heard of him again. You, you were born in, in Lodge. Can you tell me when it became obvious that life for the Jews of Lodge was going to be very difficult and very bad? When, when did you see those signs? Well, before the outbreak of the war, anti-Semitism in Poland and in other countries across Europe and even in the world uh, increased. We were Polish citizens. We, we were thinking that the Polish army will be able to withstand uh, Nazi Germany because of the propaganda, how strong the Polish army was, how good the Polish army was. But uh, when we realized it very quick that the Polish army was not much and uh, took on a week, when uh, the city of Lulch was occupied by the Nazis. And then, well, actually, it started for us Jews to be very, very difficult. 
well, uh, difficult is an understatement, you see, and uh, we were persecuted from day one. Mm. And it was a great education for me because I didn't know anything about Lodge. I knew a lot about the Holocaust and, you know, watched a lot of documentaries, but Lodge itself is just, yeah. Lodge was the second largest city. It was the second largest city. It was the fastest growing city. In the beginning of the 19th century, there was a hamlet. Very few Jews. Jews had to live in a certain part of it because it was occupied by the then the Tsarist Russia, it was under Russia. You see, and, and then uh, when Poland became independent, it started even to go much faster. And it became second only to Manchester in, in Great Britain because of the textile industry. And the, it was 180,000 Jews? There was a lot of Jews? No, 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 no. Actually, uh, 700,000 Jews. Not 700,000 inhabitants. Of them was 230 thousand Jews by the outbreak of the war. And Fiona, what were the Lodge details? You said you were new to the Lodge story when you first started chatting to Abram. What were the bits that stay with you, the kind of memorable moments of what happened to this city? Um, well, there was a particular book that um, Abram's son Charlie gave me, which was all about life in the Lodge ghetto, and that was diaries, journals and diaries found by people who were living in the Lodge ghetto. And there they were sort of writing it every day. And so you saw the grudge. You just saw how quickly it went downhill in terms of their rights and the poverty and the hunger. And I think that what stuck with me more than anything was the the hunger, the, the starvation that people – there was no food – you know, and how cold it was and how, like, the slums in particular, the areas in Lodge that were slums. And, and no sewerage either. No sewerage. And it just, you know, and talking to Abram and hearing about, you know, those areas and how they lived and you ju- we just, we can't comprehend it. We can't comprehend the poverty. And Well, I always say to people when they ask, they ask me, well, uh, how was it? I said, uh, it's... You can't even start to imagine how it really was because uh, poverty before the Poland, but the standard of living was always growing, you see. And Jewish uh, life was very active in all aspects of life, from cultural to industrial. And every day, well, we had our, our political organizations. Well, we, we belong to a socialist organization, the Bund, what did fight for betterment, not only for, the, for Jews, but also for, for all mankind. And to this day, I am still a member of this party here in Australia. Is that the Bund? The Bund. Yeah. Yes. Uh, actually, all Jews did come out of religious family. My father, when he was 13 years old, he was a rebel. And he already saw how difficult life is and how the Jews are discriminated. And uh, he actually joined this political party the at, the beginning of the, at the beginning of the 20th century, you see. And to the last day when he was deported from the Lodge Ghetto, we, he was fighting for equality for all mankind. And I think that's a really important point of difference between 
this book and many other books because Abram's family was not religious. They were political activists. So his father, his mother, they were all part of the Bund. They were, that's how they met. Um, and Abram grew up hearing these political discussions since he was, you know, a toddler. And so it was just always in him, this activism and pe- helping people. And that was what it was more about rather than religion because they were not religious. And Fiona gave a pretty visceral description of how terrible Lodge was. Can can I'd love to hear your description, you know, the actual details. You say oh, it's inhuman. Well, is, there, is there a way? Of course. Uh, uh, well... Well, we were actually six. We did live in two rooms. No running water, no toilets. You see, well, everything outside, well. And the cold. And and, 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 and cold, but, uh, well, uh, we were not suffering from cold and not suffering from hunger because my father did everything that was possible to, to see, to earn, enough for the, for the family to live. So we never were actually hungry. But I saw the poverty in other in other uh, Jewish homes where people did live in basement without no floor, sun, sun, sun spread out of the floor. The water was dripping from the walls. And in about street level was a small window. You see, the poverty was enormous. You see, but uh, there was rich people also, of course. And, and, and actually the Jews in German were so the one who built the textile industry in Lodz. So tell us about the, because we're going to get to Ronkowski's speech, but can you talk about the, the governance of the ghetto? How did it set up? You say you were a political family. Tell us how Lodz was governed. What was the system? How did the Nazis set it up? Look, uh, before the outbreak of the war, there were, the Bund was uh, well represented in, in the state uh, parliament, so-called. Then when the Nazis came, it says every change overnight. You see all those uh, Nazi laws was plastered all over. You see Jews can, you can do this and God can't do that. We see Jews had what can only buy in Jewish shops. You see, it, this was very difficult. You see, until the ghetto was actually established. When the ghetto started to be, to be built, I wasn't in, with uh, my family in Lodge. We were, were deported in December 1939. So Abram and his family were deported to, to a, a makeshift ghetto in Krakow, camp in Krakow. And so they weren't there when they first started building the, the, ghetto. the ghetto. But by the time they got back a few months later... They, w- they got the shock of their lives because they assumed they were arriving back to their hometown and that it would be, as they left it, still occupied, but, you know, assuming it would still be the same. And when they arrived back, they see fences and guards and suddenly their home is, is a prison. Um, so once they got back and they went back in, their house was occupied by strangers. People had moved in there, so they didn't have a home anymore. Um, and in a short time after arriving back, they were locked into the ghetto. And what was that first day like? Well, in those days, we were not shocked because we could expect anything. But uh, we were prepared for, for anything. But we were not uh, expecting that where we lived will be occupied by building a ghetto. 
So my father, with some connection, we were able to get a, a room in a part of the ghetto where we posted lived before the war. So I had to leave, and we were allocated a single room there. So, well, without we no furniture, only a stove was there. So in our furniture was still in our uh, flat where we did live. Everything was there, the clothing, what could we take with us when we were deported? But we were able to get from the people what did live there, bed, in a, a ward of a cadencia, and in the clothing, in the pots and pans. So we were not the worst off, because later on, the, in, in the same approximately apartment, like what we had, could live two families. It could be eight, nine people also. Obviously there were barbed wire and things like that. Did people try to get out of the ghetto to escape? Was, it, was uh, that... No, no, no. Look, people, people before could, could live large, but nobody expected what is going to follow. A lot would have left, even my family would have left, if we could predict what, what is awaiting us in the future. People, well, it's war, will be bad. Well, we knew that it's going to be very, not bad, but very bad. And, uh, well, and then on the 1st of May, actually, it was completely sealed off. Anybody who tried to cross the barbed wire was shot. And did you, did you say <laughs> In the beginning, <coughs> a bit of food smuggling went on, but the Nazis liquidated it very soon. So there was no way of escaping. What also, like I said before, and it's in the book, this part of Poland was incorporated into Germany. And it was called this part of, of uh, Poland was called the Vartiga. And uh, Polish language was forbidden. And uh, everything but, but on, in German. Officers never, uh, you, you, the Polish intelligentsia were, were arrested, even priests. But then, then a lot of Poles were sent to the general government. Did you know people who tried to escape? Well, then the people could live when before the ghettos, people could, you know, well, escape. But they were not allowed on public transport. It wasn't so easy. What it about had, the boy? The boy, the neighbor. Remember your mom? Oh, well, it, this was later when the yeah, ghetto was. Yeah, I think that's what Tony's well, talking about. Well, uh, and we didn't have any German documents. And if we would have, it would be you on it, too. Mm. You see? And, and, well, uh, a neighbor of, of our in the same building it was a mother and a son. He was 18 years of age. I can only give this example. He was tall, blonde, blue eyes, like a, a Nazi should actually look. He managed to go over the barbed wire, but then he was caught and didn't have any papers. And later we learned he was executed. Hmm. So, and those guards, what were posted around that, you see, usually they amused themselves. I took off the rifle, aimed at a Jew, even a window, or a kid, hmm. and shot them, just for, for, for boredom. So, that's the sort of thing we saw in... Um in Schindler's List, I guess, and that was the, the, the banality and the brutality and the offhand treatment of killing people for fun and sport almost. Um, is that, is, what, what sort of state, when you see that sort of thing, did, did, 
and you, I, I think as a political activist, you somehow got um, BBC and things. What was the knowledge like within the ghetto of 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 what was going on out there in in the even worse places? Oh well, we could only hear rumors in the beginning, but then people were had radios because radios had to be handed in. Uh, uh, Straight away, the Jews and Poles couldn't have any radios and, and no cameras. You see, so we were left. So some some preserved, so so receivers, not many. Yeah, I few. I knew there were seven of them. And then we built, we built our, our own receivers. It's described in, in, in the book. And... And my friend, Bonavine, who was my youth leader, actually also, and we were, the family were very close friends, and my father thought that this family, uh, uh, my friend Bonavine, his, his name was Binim, and, and his father, mother, and an auntie are next to our room on the first floor, so I had a room next to us. So we were very, very close. And with the help of an electrical engineer, we were able to build a receiving set. It didn't look like a receiving set. And we, and we didn't have any power also, enough power to, to be connected in the strength to have a radio. What, 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 and so what did they do, Fiona's? Um, well, yeah, the radio that they built, which took a long time and obviously had months. to be 18 months, and it obviously had to be a very, Primitive. had to be very careful because if they were caught, they obviously would have been killed immediately. But they had to smuggle little bits in. It's, I think we'll leave that for people to read the book because it yeah, is yeah. actually very, the way they built it is very interesting. But once they had it, of course, then they had access to the outside world. So that's when they started finding out what was happening out there. So when we got the first information, we didn't have any details of it. But uh, by the end of 1942, we knew already that uh, nearly a million of Polish Jews was already murdered. Auschwitz, as I mentioned, Auschwitz, Auschwitz and, and, and Treblinka. And you knew about those places? Uh, well, we knew about those two places, but we didn't know about the other forest. And in the first, actually, was only 40 kilometers from the city of Lodge. It was Helno in, in, a, in a village with forest. And uh, over there, I established the first, actually, a death camp. It was uh, it's Helno, it's a, it's a town. In, time, in 1942, in the beginning of 1942, this actually dead camp, Helno, started to, fun- to be functional in December 1941. Yeah. It's exactly at the same time when the Japanese did bomb Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So, uh, but we didn't have the slightest inclination that it's so, so near us. And do you think there would have been... I don't know what you can do when you're disarmed and you haven't got, um, you've got barbed wire, you've got dogs, you've got machine guns facing you. But if if the extent of the of the murder and the likelihood of death, I mean, what what could happen? I know there was a, uprisings in the Warsaw oh, Ghetto. Well, well, it is it is a, a different story. We were in the third Reich. We were in Nazi included in the Nazi proper. So we were in Nazi Germany. 
It's a Polish resistance was very practically non-existent. But in the other part, what was called the Protectorate, there was the Polish underground, because the majority of Poles did live there. So, and the Polish, when it was the uprising in Warsaw Ghetto on the 19th of April 1943, we knew the next day about the uprising. And we already had the first meeting in the factory where we worked, so we knew. And the Polish, it's a ghetto uprising, was fighting for, well, for nearly 50 days, much longer than the Polish army. And so I couldn't overcome them. So I burned down every single house in the ghetto. This house I was able to liquidate. So then there were in Treblinka an uprising, there were in other camps uprising, even in Auschwitz when I was, there was an uprising also. Only by Jews. Was that your first reaction as well? What could they do in this um, field? Yeah, I mean, and obviously I realised that they, what could they do? I mean, apart from I think the sort of resistance that they, with the building the radios and doing that sort of thing, having their meetings, that was kind of their way of, that, that was their resistance, I think, because they knew they couldn't physically, they could, they had no way of physically fighting them there was no way they you know they'd be killed instantly so they had to be smarter than that and that was why i think what what abram and bono and and their friends I, did was well, their way we, of fighting we, we call this a passive resistance yeah we try to keep up the cultural institutions privately or oh, it was a by the ghetto also, but uh, this didn't last for, for long. But privately, we try to teach the children also. Yeah, and like help it, Like in school, help yeah. them. This was our passive, this we called it a passive resistance. But otherwise, we couldn't do. If we would try, we tried in the beginning. It, we made, made, even in the beginning, demonstration in how we made the demonstration. Well, when people so they did try. They well, did try we, and they we realized tried, there was no but point. But we didn't try to do it against the German. We said about the Jewish administration. There is a, those uh, parts when we uh, told the people to come at a certain place and demonstrate. And we did, but we paid a certain price for it. You see? So we realized that we can't do it anymore. What sort of price? Did we just... went out in demonstration. So we didn't go out against the German. We get, went out in demonstration against themselves who were the leaders in the ghetto, the Jewish one. The Jewish administration. were not, not guilty of this, you see. But otherwise we couldn't do it. And we tried to do it and even so it was bloody suppressed. Well, that probably brings us to asking about the Jewish administration. Fiona, can you quickly describe what the system was, what the divide in power was? Yeah, well, the Nazis chose um, a leader, the, what they called the elder of the, the Jews. The oldest of, Je- um, of Jews. And that was the Romkowski. The in German is the eldest for the Jews in Litzmannstadt ghetto. So they basically wanted someone who was on the ground in the ghetto, who was Jewish, who could speak to the people on their behalf and relay their orders and what they wanted to be said to everyone in the ghetto, and that was Romkowski. So well, they chose and, and him. Actually, in the, in, in the beginning, well, we do, didn't know what to expect. We knew that it's going to be hunger, which is we know, knew for sure. And uh, people asked me very often, what was the food? How can you describe this food? 
But we did researching together, and we did find out that uh, a normal human being work, uh, working days in and days out need well over 2,000 calories. On the best of time, we had 700 or 800 calories. Mm. This is why nearly 25% of the inhabitants of the ghetto died of hunger and also disease. And that was part of... Rumkowski was relaying that to the people of these will be your rations, this is what you're allowed. Um, so he was the, the one who told them all of oh, this well, information. And, and, uh, and, the, and the food, what I delivered, was of the poorest quality. Hmm. So tell us about Rumkowski. Was he, what sort of a man is this? Who's uh, well, I describing him in, in, in the book. He was not, he was a member of uh, the Jewish Council and in uh, in in lodge and uh, he was uh, representing a certain party and didn't he wasn't he head of the orphanage before yeah, the yes, war yes but he was made uh, head of an orphanage an orphanage before the outbreak of the war he was but he didn't behave like he should uh, with girls he in it there was uh, a jewish court established before the war and he was accused of molesting uh, the girls in the orphanage. So young girls? Y- yes. And he was a bankrupt before the war. And uh, it was, we called it a Jewish court in the Torah. Well, uh, well but it didn't, it didn't finish the war broke out. And I had, I had from the Bund newspaper, we had a newspaper about this court. So this yeah. is a yeah. So this is the worst type of man, really. Yeah. In, in your in your eyes, if you know about these allegations and these court cases was happening, when you see this man rising to power within the uh, oh well, in the beginning we gave him the the benefit chance, of the doubt, the benefit of the doubt. You see, but later when he had uh, full power. And of course, everything was under the direction of the Germans, but he never explained it. Maybe he knew, and then it's a lot to be said about him. I described some some instances of what I've witnessed myself. Well, tell us about that one that you we met. Well, that was quite an, uh, an affecting scene in the book. Tell us about your early memories of Wumkowski in the ghetto. Oh, well... Look, before, this was before the ghetto. This was when I was still before deported to. So Nazis asked to present 30 Jews who will be able to make a certain committee. And Rumkowski was in it. And he did present around 30 people, but around 27 of them were murdered. Not by Rumkowski, but the Germans. You see, so well, uh, and then in, in the ghetto, well, how he behaved. It, it's explained in it's a book as much as I wanted to. I didn't uh, everything say, but I said enough. The story of the carriage. Do you yeah. want to tell the story? The story of the lady asking for food. Oh yes, uh, he he had a. Uh, a carriage for himself, a horse, of course, and always a policeman with him, and, and the driver of the, <coughs> of the horse-driven carriage. And uh, I saw him. 
on a certain street where a woman with uh, three kids, once she had uh, on her arms, I don't know, it's her husband, maybe he died already by then, and two toddlers were next to her. And uh, when he stopped, she went to him and asked Romkowski, Mr. Romkowski, my children are starving, so I haven't got enough to eat. You see, well, what should he say? He slapped in, uh, twice and, uh, and, uh, and said, go away. Instead of telling my poor lady, everybody's starving in the ghetto, everybody's hungry in the ghetto. It's just, I wonder in this, so he comes across as a, almost like a guy who was pumped up by power in the most powerless situation because he oh, himself... Oh, well, he grew in power in, uh, in the in, in, in ghetto, yes. And so did he feel, you know, that bully power where someone who gets a little bit of power... Oh, well, uh, he, he, well, yeah, yeah, well, yes, he was a despot. But he was a despot. But, de- but he couldn't help it. He, he carried out all the orders of the Germans. Well, with a speech, what we witnessed, you read the speech. Well, let's. I've read the speech. This is what I'm going to ask you about yes. in a moment. You, you see, you, you see, in his speech, he said, "How could he come to mothers and fathers and tell you, give me your children so you can live?" Hmm. This says a lot. And. And I guess what you're saying is that before the war, there were many signposts for Jews oh, well, who knew him to say that but, he was not but, a good but man. We, we couldn't foresee what is going to happen later, but he wasn't the right person. Was you he see? killing people himself? Would he kill people? Or would no, 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 he didn't kill. He, uh, no, but he, but he established a court in the ghetto and a prison in ghetto. And people what were arrested, I'm explaining it in the, in, 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 in the book. Well, I make, want to make it for people to interest to read the book. You see, I can't uh, explain it. If not, you will have to be how many hours? But maybe there's some people who can't get the book. So what, what's some examples oh, of well, what he did? Well, I said enough. Yeah. I think I said enough. Because without reading the books, I will not understand it completely. Yeah. And that's why I can't explain it broadly. Um, this is Charlie Abram's son. And Charlie, what was what were you elaborating on? Uh, Dad, Dad mentioned that he established a police force and a, a prison. But what also would happen was that people were, that were taken to that prison, it was virtually a death sentence for them as well, uh, either through malnutrition, starvation, or they were passed on to the Gestapo. Well, no, well, you see, they were hanging in the ghetto, but not by the Jews. It was uh, the Germans. Yeah. And some of the most distressing pages of the book are around this time of September 1942, at the time of the speech, which we're going to get to. But in advance, there were signs that the Germans were stepping up their liquidations. Can you tell us what happened with uh, the, uh, well, with the we, hospital? Uh, uh, with, with the hospital, this was on the 1st of September 1942. On the 1st of September, as I came into the ghetto, this I was witnessing. After, as I surrounded so-called the hospital, 
in ghetto and took out all sick people. And I was witnessing how I threw children, and newly born children from the second floor down to the waiting wagon. This one by Jews, this was the young uh, Nazis in uniform. This is what it is. And this was the beginning, actually, in 1942, with so-called Gesperre. It was Gesperre is lockup in German. When uh, after after this, this round up in the hospitals, when they liquidated the hospitals, there was a 10-day curfew. Uh, everybody had to be in their homes. And, uh, and anybody who will be found out at the home will be shot. And then I cordoned off blocks by block and demanded that everybody had to go down to the yard. All children up to the age of 10 had to be handed in and elderly people. And this is where the tragedy started. Well, well, what can I say? What can I say? People try to save their children as best as I could, hide the children, and uh, I tried to hide uh, my my. I did hide my mother. My father undertook to hide my two aunties with their six young children, but were from four to ten years of age. But I uh, he didn't succeed. And so I was sent away, never to be seen again. And when when this was over. I went uh, to look for my relatives in no parts of the ghetto. I could find no one. So I was left only with my mother. And the rest of my family was sent away there. And now it's his story. I always sent to Helmno, Kulmhof, the first death camp in, 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 in Europe, in Poland. And just something else in context. Why was it children uh, under 10 and elderly, why were they the ones that were to be taken away? Was because they were not productive yeah. as part of the slave labor oh, force. Well, and let me tell you, Himmler, it's, yeah. it's on record. Himmler, Himmler, you, you heard about Himmler. Yeah. Himmler, when he had a speech, it, it's, it's still in, 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 in German history papers, when he had spoke to his officers, inside, somebody asked by the office, why the children? He said, I don't want to, can't leave, leave the children, the future, who will, they will take revenge. Hmm. This was his, his answer to the officers of the SS. And the, the speech delivered by Rumkowski, was that, delivered before this 10-day lockdown, or was it... Oh, well, no, 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 this, this was before, before the lockdown, preparing the people what I have to do. Can you take me back to the day of the speech? Can you, can you say how that was announced? And oh, when, 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 when it was announced, it was, of course, plastered on, uh, on the walls that Romkowski is going to speak on the spot where the fire brigade for the ghetto, the Jewish fire brigade was in ghetto. And it's to assemble at a certain time. You said we got this proclamation uh, in the center. And then you can imagine when he said, 
give me your children. It says well, what I'm say, telling you. Give me your children. So you will be able to live. And, and this was enough. Well, and uh, I was once asked by a student, by a university student, what do you think about Rumkowski? Well, how do you explain? So I said to the student, you see, in Warsaw ghetto, when the Germans demanded to, to the, uh, that for deportation, five to six thousand Jews every, every day, he committed suicide. When Jomkowski was asked, he didn't commit suicide. He, he did it. Yeah. And when you walked into the square, what was, the, what was happening? What, was, what did it look like? Well, we didn't uh, we we didn't uh, expect the speech. Can you imagine mothers and fathers assembled? I was with my father, 1942. I was 18 years old, standing there and listening to him. Jews, hand me your children, hand over the children to me. Well. My father, I never saw my father cry. My father cried. I understood it very well also. I had tears in my, in my eyes. And you can imagine mothers and fathers, how they reacted to it. Everybody rushed so quick home to try to save their children. What to do? And people did try to hide their children. Yeah, I, I, I read... In the book I had, I first read the speech in a book by Penguin of significant speeches of the 20th century, and it said in brackets that people started, the people started screaming as he said the words that the square was screaming. Yes, screaming and, and crying and and and, 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 uh, and how. You told the at the start of this interview. You told us the end of the story for your mother. It was a very affecting story. Yeah. Um, can you tell us? your end of war story how how, how oh. you how you got out of auschwitz how you lived oh well i got out of auschwitz just by luck and by chance because after being there in november 1944 a engineer from a big enterprise came to buy slave labor usually those big german enterprises which is I've learned, of course, later, that by from those dead camp or slave labor camps, workers for the industries. So, and so I paid five mark for every slave labor for the so-called up, upkeep. And so I had also tricks, the germs, I knew about it. When so I assembled and so... Well, who is a tiler, who is a metal worker, who is a shoemaker, or any, any trade, and then I send them to the guest chamber. So, well, when this happened in 1944, when he said, the, the engineer came and said we had to assemble, and he said, well, I am looking for metal workers. And I didn't have much time to think about it. Well, 
Maybe it's a chance. Maybe it's a trick. But it, I knew. I had to try it. It is now. It takes much longer than my mind that works. And, and I stepped out. And he asked me one question. He asked me how many talent does a bore in a bore machine? Who will know it? How did? Well, I wasn't stunned. I knew it because for two and a half years in the metal factory, I worked by a bore machine, a middle size. So I told him, and I didn't know it's, it's the right answer, or he even knew it. But he sent me, didn't say anything, and I said, now I was, didn't think, well, this is it, or I will be guest, or I will be, it will be my luck. You know, I turned out, I turned out it's my, my luck. I made the right decision. Hmm. It's just how it happened. It's an incredible story of uh, of 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 it working. The moment of stepping forward. Yes, uh, you see. Well, and here it is why I'm saying my survival is ninety nine percent of luck. Even I did a lot to survive, but my survival is ninety nine percent of luck. I read the Primo Levi book. It was, it's one of the most effective books oh, yes. I've ever read, if this is a man. And, this um, is a man, yes. And that gave a description of Barrack's life at Auschwitz yeah. where they were talking about, you know, that if you lost a shoe, that could be a death sentence because the well, knock-on yes. from that was that you'd get... Oh, well, yes. For no reason. You know, well, it's in the book, I think, also. I heard a, a story about a rabbi. You see, SS wanted, SS men, officer wanted to have fun. And a rabbi was there in, uh, I don't know in which camp it was, but, and uh, he said to this rabbi, ah, well, your God is so almighty. I give you five minutes that he he makes this miracle I'm going to shoot you in five minutes. That uh, he will strike me down. The assessment. Pray to God that he struck me down. Well, of course, the five minutes passed. The rabbi was standing there, and I, uh, well, and uh, the assessment burst out in a laughter, and said, "Where is your miracle?" And the rabbi said, it already happened. Hmm. You know why? Because he made me what I am, not what you are. And he shot him. And Fiona, is there... Which part of the book is that in, and and you know, is that the part? Uh, that's in the in the chapters set in Auschwitz. Yeah, in the Auschwitz chapters. And what what was the liberation chapters about? What was the um, story? Well, there? basically, Abram was, as he said, he was then sent to um, another camp. Oh, not that it, well. I, well, when I was sent out from Auschwitz in nineteen forty four. Then we went to a 
camp, uh, it was called Wattenstadt. Then we were sent to, uh, to Braunschweig, where actually I was working in Braunschweig, the city of Braunschweig. There was a track building factory. Of course, we couldn't work there for long because the bombing were day and night. You see, then they put us on, uh, after a while, they put us on, on trains again. And we were again, from camp to camp, we had to march also. And as I put out, before my last camp, in the camp of what was for women, Ravensbrück. Did you hear about Ravensbrück? It was a women's camp. Well, uh, but it was women. There was not many women there. And over there, well, from there, they, they sent us then on, on a train. We didn't know where to. Uh, we had later side going to make an exchange to Sweden, but, but we didn't believe them. And uh, we arrived in this camp, what was called Webelin, only 100 kilometers from Berlin. Well, it was a camp. It was a, a slave labor camp, not for Jews. It was for all nationalities what I occupied in Europe. And... Uh, and uh, there was Jews also, and we were squeezed in there. And even they were building what were not finished. And, and the rumors were there, they were building this camp for the American Jews. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you see? And on the 1st of May, they put us on, on trains. Again, only the last Jews, I don't know the others. You see? And so I left. And so I stopped before a forest. And uh, I said, uh-oh. I was with, uh, with other friend. He said, uh-oh, this is not good. A forest, I'm going to take us to the forest and shoot us. And so I said, now we're going to take you to, to fetch blankets. Oh, blankets? Well, I never, I never did this. And, and everybody went, there. So I went with my friend there and hide in the bushes. If I will be coming back, I took my chance. If we would be covered, we will be shot. And after now, I don't know, it sounds like an eternity. So I came back and I were carrying blankets. So it really was blankets? Yes. And everybody had a blanket, but not us. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, you're 96 years old, Ivan. 97. 97. Nine, Nearly 98. 98. Yes. I've, you see? Uh, well, so we, we managed. I took us back to the camp. The following day, we were liberated by the Americans. Oh. And what the Americans did find, piled up, it's those skeleton corpses, four to five, six feet high. And so I took two hundreds of those corpses to the nearest city, what was called Ludwigslust. And in the middle of the city was a park. The Germans of the city of Ludwigslust had to walk around those corpses. The mayor and his, his wife committed suicide. And the, and the major of uh, the 82nd Division had a speech to them, and this speech is in, 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 in the book, and told them what I actually did. Well, I should put that in the episode as well. I'll get someone to read 
that speech, mm. Abram. It's amazing. And and Fiona, the story. I mean, we've we've probably touched on some of the most um, graphic and and distressing parts of this story. But this book is, you know, it's not just. It's it's quite. It's an uplifting book about yeah. the story in Australia. Yeah, and, and that's why it's called the Strength of Hope. Because yeah, obviously after the I, war, yeah. there was a lot of great things in Abram's life, meeting Sesha, his wife in Belgium in 1946. Oh, well, man, man. Travel back to, uh, travel, I can't call it travel, going back to Poland when I gained some uh, weight. And uh, and also what happened before, I, well, I and my friend buried some boxes with documentation in the radio also. And we told each other when the ghetto was liquidated, that any one of us who survives has to go back and retrieve those documents. So I didn't know my friend did survive. And uh, so I had to go back. And I went back and I was describing the travel back. It was Many there. adventures. He had many yeah. adventures many, after many the war. Adventures. Did you go back to Auschwitz? Uh, no, I didn't go back. It's the first time I went to Auschwitz. But I went a few times back later. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I went, brought out some people, but also uh, everything is... I was arrested also by the handcover there with my friend who died also only five or six weeks ago in Los Angeles. Oh. Uh, Los Angeles. We were arrested in Berlin and uh, were put in a danger with Nazis that we were going to be sent to Siberia. Oh. Well, the rest is in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, Avram, you've... you've Brought to life, I think it's been, as I said, one of the most affecting speeches I ever read in my life. I don't think it's a great speech. I think it's a shameful speech and a and a horrible speech. Yeah. Um, but for to meet someone who was there in that square that day, yeah, I, I tell you, it's been a, a real privilege to meet you, Abram, and, and thank you for giving you, us your time and also for everything you've given Melbourne in these 60, well, 70 I'm years. S- I'm telling people, don't thank me. I made it a mission in my life. And, I, and I'm lucky at the age of 98, you see, I'm still able, still able to do what I promised to do. It's hard to have any words at all after that. And I remember I did actually thank Fiona as well, but the cutoff point worked best after Abram's amazing words about living for his promise to his mother on the train station at Auschwitz. I had real regrets driving away from Abram's house in Elstonwick that I hadn't taken my 15-year-old down to sit in and listen to the interview And I'm certainly going to get Polly to read The Strength of Hope. I think it's a really beautiful and important book. The speech of the week is Chaim Rumkowski's Give Me Your Children, delivered in the square of the Lodge Ghetto on the 4th of September, 1942. There's an amazing version of Give Me Your Children on YouTube. It's Tobias Menzies from Outlander and Game of Thrones and The Crown, plays Prince Philip in The Crown. And he has read the speech for Almeida Theatre, and it is an astonishing read. It's so painful and harrowing, and here it is. 
A grievous blow has struck the ghetto. They are asking us to give up the best we possess. The children and the elderly. I was unworthy of having a child of my own. So I gave the best years of my life to children. I have lived and breathed with children. I, I never imagined I would be forced to deliver this sacrifice to the altar with my own hands. In my old age, I must stretch out my hands and beg. Brothers and sisters, hand them over to me. Fathers and mothers, give me your children. Yesterday afternoon, they gave me the order to send more than 20,000 Jews out of the ghetto, and if not, we will do it. So, the question became, should we take it upon ourselves, do it ourselves, or leave it to others to do? Well, we, that is I and my closest associates, thought first not about how many will perish, but how many is it possible to save? And we reached the conclusion that however hard it would be for us, we should take the implementation of this order into our own hands. I must perform this difficult and bloody operation. I must cut off limbs in order to save the body itself. I must take children, because if not, others may be taken as well. God forbid. I have no thought of consoling you today, nor do I wish to calm you. I must lay bare your full anguish and pain. I come to you like a bandit to take from you what you treasure most in your heart. And I have tried using every possible means to get the order revoked. I tried when that proved to be impossible to soften the order. Just yesterday, I ordered a list of children aged nine. I wanted at least to save this, this one age group, the nine to ten-year-olds. But I was not granted this concession. On only one point did I succeed in saving the ten-year-olds and up. So let this be a consolation to our profound grief. There are in the ghetto many patients who can expect to live only a few days more, maybe a few weeks. I don't know if the idea is diabolical or not, but I must say it. Give me the sick. In their place, we can save the healthy. And common sense dictates that the saved must be those who can be saved and those who have a chance of being rescued, not those who cannot be saved in any case. We live in the ghetto. 
We live with so much restriction that we, we do not have enough even for the healthy, let alone for the sick. I mean, each of us feeds the sick at the expense of our own health. We give our bread to the sick. We give our meager ration of sugar, our little piece of, of meat. And what's the result? Not enough to cure the sick and we ourselves become ill. Of course, such sacrifices are the most beautiful and noble, but there are times when one has to choose. Sacrifice the sick who haven't the slightest chance of recovery and who also may make others ill or rescue the healthy. I could not deliberate over this problem for long. I had to resolve it in favor of the healthy. So in this spirit, I gave the appropriate instructions to the doctors and they will be expected to deliver all incurable patients so that the healthy who want and are able to live will be saved in their place. I must tell you a secret. They requested 24,000 victims, 3,000 a day for eight days. I succeeded in reducing the number to 20,000, but only on the condition that these be children under the age of 10. Children 10 and older are safe. Since the children and the aged together equal only some 13,000 souls, the gap will have to be filled with the sick. I, I, I understand you, mothers. I see your tears, all right. I also feel what you feel in your hearts, you fathers who you know, will have to go to work in the morning after your children have been taken from you when just yesterday you were playing with your, your dear little ones. All this I, I know and feel. And since four o'clock yesterday when I first found out about the order. I have, I have been utterly broken. I, I share your pain. I suffer because of your anguish. And I, I, I don't know how I'll survive this, where I'll find the strength to do so. I can barely speak. Help me carry out this action. I am trembling. A, a broken Jew stands before you. This is the most difficult all this is the most difficult of all orders I have ever had to carry out at any time. I reach out to you with my broken, trembling hands and beg. Give into give into my hands the victims so that we can avoid having further victims and a population of one hundred thousand Jews can be preserved. So they promise me. If we deliver our victims by ourselves, there will be peace. I understand what it means to tear off a part of the body. So, which is better? What do you want? That 80,000 to 90,000 Jews remain? Or God forbid that the whole population be annihilated. You may judge as you please. My duty is to preserve the Jews who remain. I do not speak to hotheads. I speak to your reason and conscience. 
One needs the heart of a bandit to ask from you what I am asking. But put yourself in my place. Think logically. And you'll reach the conclusion that I cannot proceed any other way. The part that can be saved is much larger than the part that must be given away. And that's it. What a monstrous time in human history. And it's incredible to think that Abram Goldberg at the age of 97 is fulfilling that promise and teaching us all about what happened and the truth of what happened. And he's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Thank you so much, Abram Goldberg. Thank you, Fiona Harris, for being special guests on the show. The book is the strength of hope and it's out through Affirm. A big thank you to Tobias Menzies and the Almeida Theatre for allowing me to use that incredible audio of Tobias's read. Thank you to DocPlay for sponsoring the program. The link is docplay.com forward slash racks with an R forward slash speakola and you get a landing page there. You can see my recommendations for great DocPlay films and I'm adding a film unfinished, the story of that propaganda film being made about the Warsaw Ghetto and the images of the corpses at the end of that film. I will not soon forget, but that's an amazing film. Look it up. There is a 45-day free offer for Speak Older listeners. Thank you to David Bridie for the theme music. Thank you to everyone who has become a patron and a supporter and a donator. A shout-out to David Parkin, the ex-Carlton coach who became a supporter of the patron, and also Dean McIntosh for a very kind donation. So thank you to those and others who keep Speakola going. An emotional but hopefully memorable episode. A bit of light relief next time. Our guest is Laura Lex, the UK comedian who wrote Klopp Actually. You might have seen her Jürgen Klopp tweets during lockdown. Very funny. She made a book out of them, but she also gave a great bride speech. She'll be talking about that. Until next time, speak well.